Welcome back to a Friday Dispatch podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Steve Hayes. And this week, we are talking to Danielle Pletka. She's a senior fellow in foreign and defense policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute. She focuses on U.S. foreign policy generally and the Middle East specifically. You've seen her work on the Dispatch and in a whole lot of other places. Plus, if you aren't listening to her podcast with AEI's Mark Thiessen, it's called what the hell is going on making sense of the world? And that's probably where we should start. Let's dive in. Danielle, the U.S. had its first bilateral meeting with China in Alaska this week. And it appears that it was contentious. Can you give us sort of a 30,000 foot of what is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now you know why we picked that name. It, it, it basically covers every situation. Look, this, this is even worse than what you described. Um, this is uh, the first meeting between our new National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, and our new Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, at, with their Chinese counterparts. And what you're talking about, which is that it became contentious, is that it fell apart during the photo op. Right. It was staggering. They had a four minute scheduled photo opportunity. The United States came out with a pretty tough condemning statement about China. And the Chinese retorted with a 17 minute litany of everything the United States has done wrong from Beijing's perspective. They then went back and forth. This entire ridiculous exercise that would be three inch headlines if Donald Trump were president was uh, took place over an hour and degenerated into a back and forth that frankly we would have sort of been comfortable seeing in the 11th grade you know recess parking lot okay well i didn't get to have recess in 11th grade and i'm sad about that now uh, <laughs> whose fault whose fault was this um I think it was probably everybody's fault. You know, it wouldn't be great to say, you know, that it was all the Chinese, but the U.S. came out really strong. And frankly, it's great to talk tough. I think we need to be tough on the communist Chinese. They're bad, 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 bad people. On the other hand, you need to have a policy behind that. We don't even have an assistant secretary for East Asia and the Pacific nominated, let alone confirmed. So I really feel like they were out over their skis and uh, and underestimated what the Chinese reaction was going to be. It was a little bit like that weird President Biden interview with George Stephanopoulos where he went after the Russians and now they've recalled their ambassador. Steve? Well, uh I will once again play my role as the uh, optimist about U.S. foreign policy and national security. <laughs> um, isn't it, if you are sort of fairly hawkish or believe that the United States should do what it can to uh, project its power and to shape outcomes rather than just react to them, and you had concerns about the Biden administration going in in this regard, Shouldn't we be heartened by the fact that he's actually willing to at least talk tough, even if we haven't seen the the full um, 
reveal of the policies there. I mean, I, I was, I read the, you know, I don't want the president to be needlessly antagonistic. On the other hand, I don't think there's anything wrong with calling Vladimir Putin a killer because Vladimir Putin is a killer. That's what he is. That's what he's been doing. I don't have any problem with the Biden administration sitting down across from the Chinese, even with the press there and making very clear that at, at least what they, at least the United States is objecting in a serious way to what the Chinese are doing, I, objecting rhetorically in a serious way. I mean, Donald Trump, whatever you want to say about Donald Trump uh, on those two scores, he didn't do that, didn't do much of that rhetorically, right? He didn't go after Vladimir Putin. He was tougher, certainly in policies, Vladimir Putin, than his friendly rhetoric. But with the Chinese, um, you know, he, he was praising Xi even as the coronavirus was raging. So you're really laying out two sides of the same coin, right? It's speak softly and carry a big stick or speak loudly and carry no stick. And I guess that's my, my problem. Um, I love talking tough to the Chinese. They deserve it, uh, right? They're, they're, they, they, they're running concentration camps. Do we really need to say any more than that? Uh, you know, they, they, they lied to the world about a disease that's killed half a million Americans alone. Right? So, yeah, of course, they deserve it. Uh, Russia? Yeah, Putin is a killer, right? You know, he just tried to just tried to, to kill Alexei Navalny. And then when Alexei Navalny recovered, came back uh, to Russia, he arrested him. So uh, and stuck him into something that looks like a gulag. So, of course, they're terrible. I like the fact that the administration recognizes that. That's all terrific. Here's the problem. Anything that they do to follow up that isn't as tough, and I'll bet you money here, Stephen Hayes, anything they do to follow up that isn't as tough as that rhetoric is going to be taken as a capitulation by the Russians and the Chinese. You've got to back your blah, blah up with some muscle. And sure, Donald Trump sucked when it came to strongman. Am I allowed to say sucked on your podcast? For sure. Thank you. Uh, good. Yeah. So we, we have an explicit rating on our podcast because of the word hell. So we use it as license to swear all the time. Uh, and, <laughs> I, you know, I've just become that person. But sure, you know, they, 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 they do. They suck. But if you don't have a policy that backs that up immediately, you are going to look weak. And that's what they're always looking for. They're always probing us for weakness. They're always trying to tell if we're, we talk tougher than we act. And that's my big concern. What would be the, if we were looking for indications that such tougher policies are to come, what would we be looking for specifically in your view with respect to both Russia and China? So soup to nuts, let's start with something easy. Uh, Nord Stream 2, you know, I don't know whether people, people don't fo follow, you know, uh, European energy policy and pipelines and all of that stuff. But over the last few years, the Russians have been building a pipeline to Europe, to Germany in particular, that uh, bypasses Ukraine, bypasses Eastern Europe. And what does that mean? It means that they will be able to, they will be able to cut off Eastern Europe and their neighbors and cut off energy supplies without cutting them off to Europe. Before, when they wanted to threaten Ukraine and cut off energy supplies, they ended up having to cut off Germany as well. So they're doing this. The Trump administration you know, probably for the wrong reason, probably because Donald hated Angela Merkel, but still really, really got them to stop 
stop uh, uh, construction. Okay, They stopped construction at the end of 2019. You know what they did when Biden came to power? Literally within the week of his inauguration, they restarted it and the Biden administration doesn't have a policy. Okay, So let's pick something as, as, as easy as that. They're not doing anything on it, but there's 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 lots more as well. You know, we could we could we could be doing a lot more uh, on on China and uh, and and the Uyghurs. Uh, we could be doing a lot more to actually go after them. We could start. We could we could be pressing the International Criminal Court on why they're not going after the Chinese for their concentration camps, but instead going after the Jews. In Israel, there are a lot of there are a lot of things we could do, from small things to big things. And so far, what the Biden administration has signaled is they're really not sure they want to do those things. So, speaking of eleventh uh, grade taunting, Biden called <laughs> Putin a killer, and Putin responded, "Takes one to no one," which I really felt. Um, that was a moment we needed women in leadership positions. I, women tend not to. You know, there's psychological warfare, but this the stupid uh, like dad level bullying um, seemed particularly mannish. Uh, China and Russia, though, are having their first uh, bilateral gathering next week of the Biden administration. What do you see happening in the Biden administration as China and Russia become even closer and Biden decides that those are the two countries to talk tough about, while I think, you know, and Steve, you and I talked about this on Wednesday, uh, while not talking tough on North Korea or Iran or some of the other threats that we have, the two countries that he most is targeting are getting very cozy, little footsies under the table, no more. They're, they're straight holding hands, uh, you know, in class to continue our high school metaphor. No, I wish my high school had been as much fun as this conversation. Uh, but, and I also didn't have recess in 11th grade, but there was a quad where a lot of smoking went on. So you yeah. know, we, can, we, can, we can use that as our okay. analogy. Yeah. You know, you know I, I, I actually think I have good news on that China-Russia access of evil thing. Can we call it that? Um, that's going on. We, our, you know, I, 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 I'm not a China person. I'm not a Russia person. Um, the Middle East is my area. But the guys who I work with at AEI both on the Russia side and on the China side, agree that the Chinese-Russian partnership is basically just talk. It's not real. And not only is it not real, but they have a lot of opposing interests. Um, and so that's sort of you know fascinating that they, they, they still think that it's effective to position themselves as allies. And, you know, they'll back each other up, like in the Security Council. You know, Russia will back up China when we say, hey, we want to do something about North Korea. And the Chinese are like, hell to the no. And the Russians say, yeah, probably not. Um, so, you know, you see that. But when it comes to sort of big economic partnerships, those really aren't real. Uh, they're not they're not sharing oil and gas in the way that in the way that the, that was suggested even a few years ago. They actually have opposing interests in the Middle East, and um, and so I I don't worry that much uh, about uh, you know all of the the ex commies and the current commies coming together to stymie us. Sure, they they do bad things separately that are anathema to our national security interests. But in terms of their 
Footsy, I would say it's, you know, it's just, just Footsy. It's not going to advance any further than, so they're, than that. They're the other cheerleaders on the cheerleading squad, but we're like the head cheerleader they want to take down, but then they would still have to fight amongst themselves over, you know, who gets the, the hot guy, et cetera. Steve, Danielle and I are going to take this high school analogy as far. I'm happy to just keep, I'll sit here. You guys keep going. You guys keep going. I feel like we have a lot of high school stuff to work out, Danielle and I. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's probably true. Like, like the rest of the universe. Yeah. Uh, Um, well, let's let's jump to the Middle East. Um, you had a terrific piece for the Dispatch website the other day on Iran. And my uh, direct, simple question to you is, how worried should we be about the Biden administration's eagerness to get back into the Iran deal? So thank you. First of all, I, I really enjoyed doing that piece. And, and, and I was able to allude to in it another piece that the dispatch had uh, that Charlotte Lawson had actually done uh, on a on a similar topic about one of the people who uh, uh, about whom I wrote so here's you know there's a theme coming out here which is you know rhetoric and action in the Biden administration uh, and the same was true in in my piece uh, basically the Biden administration has gone to great pains to underscore to Everybody that they're not in any hurry to race back to the Iran deal. That they're, you know, that they're not going to be giving anything away to the Iranians in order to get them to the table. That they don't want just the same old deal. They want an Iran deal plus that deals with missiles and terrorism and human rights. And that's been a pretty consistent message from president, secretary of state, the national security advisor, you know, don't worry, guys, we are not the third term of the Obama administration when it comes to Iran. The problem really is, and oh, and I should say as well that um, we've had an opportunity to hear this rehearsed very carefully because two really senior officials uh, who are uh, one, uh, Wendy Sherman, who is, has been nominated to be Deputy Secretary of State, and Colin Call, number two, who has been nominated to be uh, Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, which is sort of the number three job in, in the Pentagon. Both of them had hearings last week, and both of them, again, towed this same line. You know, we are really reasonable. We are really great. Yeah. What did Wendy say? She said something on the lines of, I recognize the world is a different place and that our actions need to change commensurate with those changes. It was super reassuring. Don't worry, guys. You know, we're not crazy. The problem is that if you line up what they said in their hearings with what they've said, not just over the last four years of the Trump administration, but even during the Obama administration, it, it, it ends up looking like complete BS. So, for example, my favorite is this Iran deal plus. So one of the things that's become clear over the last few years, and sorry, this is a long, just shut me up if I'm going on too long. No, no, please. But one of the one of the things that's become clear to everybody, including the the people who you know inked the deal and were really proud of it, is that the sunset provisions in it are really bad news. What are sunset provisions? The 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 parts of the deal that expire at a date certain. So last October, the ban on conventional weapons sales to Iran, which was part of the Iran deal, expired. Meaning now is a free for all, and the Russians went ahead and just 
did a whole ton of Iran, of, uh, of arms deals with with uh, the Iranians, and I suspect that there'll be even more to come. And other things are about to expire as well. We've got uh, uh, the expiration of missile restrictions coming up in a year. Then we've got uh, the expiration of uh, uh, uranium enrichment restrictions coming up a couple of years after that. All of these bang, 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 like next year and the year after and the year after. So the Iran deal really is kind of a weak need thing at this point, you know, t- six years after Obama signed it. And all of these guys have said, we need an Iran deal plus, we need a better deal. The problem is that each of them have said, not just at the time, but in the last couple of years, we can't have a better Iran deal. There's no such thing as Iran deal plus. There's no way that the Iranians are going to sign up to anything else. So the question that we're all left with is, what was real? What you said then or what you're saying now? My vote is that what they were saying then was real. I actually want to talk more about the piece that you wrote. So you were interviewing a scholar who spent 40 months in an Iranian prison until he was released in a prisoner exchange in 2019. I mean, we could just talk about like line by line this piece, but I hope you'll you'll summarize parts of it for us. But this was a guy who uh, was a PhD candidate trying to do dissertation research. And by the way, I have heard that, uh, you know, PhD dissertations really break people as humans uh, and emotionally destroy them. He said he was just having a really hard time finding the stuff that he needed. So he kept going further and further um, until, well, he got arrested for quote unquote spying and sentenced to 10 years of prison, uh, of which he served 40 months. Um, You know, take us through some of this. First of all, perhaps me as a layperson who does not do foreign policy, why do people keep going to Iran and getting arrested? (laughs) This seems like a place I would not go for fear of getting arrested. And yet, this guy is just doing academic work and thinks that's worth it? Yeah. So, I mean, that's a great question. So the piece was about this scholar named Wang Jue, Princeton guy doing his PhD. Um, right. And his PhD was uh, on, not on, you know, the Iranian nuclear program or anything that's difficult or even, you know, Iranian human rights. It was about it was about the Hajars and the uh, intra-border area between Iran and Afghanistan at the turn of the 20th century. So, you know, more than 100 years ago. And um, and I think the world I think the world of this man, he he's actually a Gene Kirkpatrick scholar uh, at AEI for the next two years. He uh, and and what happened to him was what happens to lots of people, right? He, he, he got a visa to go to Iran uh, in order to pursue his studies and his historical research. He believed, because this is what everybody in academia says, that, uh, that the U.S. was on the road to rapprochement. He went during the Obama administration after the signing of the JCPOA that we just talked about, um, that we're on the road to rapprochement, that the best thing that could happen would be that President Obama then would go and meet with the president of Iran or even Ayatollah Khamenei, that that Iran was mostly reacting to U.S. pressure rather than rather than you know having a negative agenda of its own that all of the bad things that we are hearing about Iran are really our fault and that go back to our original sin when we tried to you know the CIA took out the democratically elected leader of Iran in the 1950s right that's the line that is that the sounds line deeply of, naive but you're saying that's just accepted 
knowledge in academic circles or was? But that's that's first of all, that is accepted wisdom in academic circles. But that is also the position of lots and lots of people on the other side of the fight uh, in, in, in American politics. I mean, you can go and look at the tweets of people like Congressman Ro Khanna uh, and and others who all espouse this idea that Iran is sort of uh, this innocent country being oppressed by America that's been forced into the position that it's in because, you know, you pick it. We hate Muslims. We hate Shiites. We hate powerful brown foreigners. You know, who the hell knows? Um, ignoring all of the history. You say naive. I agree with you. Uh, but, you know, here went Jiwe, Wang Jiwe, uh, to off to Tehran, believing all these things. He was there for a few months doing research, but he had a hard time, um, a hard time getting into the archives. And so, one of his, uh, one of the, the the people he knew offered to do it for him, and that ended up uh, being part of the problem. The uh, the uh, um, intelligence ministry and security officials came to visit him. Uh, they interviewed him. They told him not to leave the country. Uh, this part's really troubling. He went to the Swiss embassy. You know, we don't have an embassy in in, in Iran. He went to the Swiss embassy and said, they're our protecting power, and said, hey, this is going on. I'm a little nervous. They took my passport. Um, can I stay here with you and get your diplomatic protection? And the Swiss said, no, <laughs> go home. Thanks very much. And of course, he was arrested. He was interrogated. He was in isolation. He was put in Evan prison. And, you know, the thing is, You'd like to think, okay, he changed his mind because he's just angry at them for how he was mistreated. No, he said that during his interrogations, one of the things he said to his interrogators was, I really wish Obama could come here and meet with you and that we could have a better relationship. And they used that to prosecute him to suggest that he was trying to undermine the security and leadership of the Iranian state. You know, for me, that's just so telling, right? They took his naivete and used it to prosecute him. And so now he's a different guy. Yeah. Okay, what I have to ask, you? sorry, Steve, has he yeah, got go. his PhD yet? Nah, no, he's not. He's not. Uh, he's doing a ton of work on Iran. He's actually looking at China and Iran. You asked about, you know, China and what they're doing. He, he speaks fluent Chinese, and his parents are originally from from China, as is he. Um, so he's he's not finished his PhD, but he is really, really out there talking to people, trying to trying not just to understand, you know, where the other side is coming from, but trying to educate people through the prism of his experience. Evan Prison is uh, the the most, I think, notorious prison in Iran. Uh, stories about what's gone on there for decades uh, are, are enough to send shivers down your spine. What did he tell you about his experience there? So in the beginning, he was in uh, one part of the prison. He was in a, a, uh, you know, a small cement uh, room with no bed um, and nothing in it. Uh, at no, no, no sink, no nothing. Uh, and he, he was there for a pretty long stretch of weeks while he was being interrogated. He would be taken out, uh, to be interrogated, uh, and have, uh, and be blindfolded. 
which, you know, I mean, just, just thinking about this is, is, is terrifying. He had no communications, not with, uh, not, no consular support. He obviously had no opportunity to talk to family. Later on, the circumstances changed a little bit. Um, and, and you guys, you guys used the headline for this piece that I really, really love. Um, they wasted away four years of my life. So that's a quote from, from Wang Jiwei. And it was in response to a question that I asked him. I said, so, you know, I'm reading about it. They took you out of solitary. You were talking to other prisoners. You were learning, you, know, you were improving your Farsi. You were actually studying French with one of the, the other prisoners. You know, you, you got a, a phone call every week or so. I mean, you know, that doesn't sound that terrible. There, this isn't, you know, this isn't the blog. And, and, and he, he responded, he's a very temperate guy. And he responded, you know, no, what? You know, they stole four years of my life. This is terrible. And it, it's a, it's a great, it's a great interview with him. I, I loved it. I really commend it to everybody. And um, Graham Wood, this terrific journalist who works for the Atlantic, did another profile of him that just came out as well, which is also awesome. Oh, good. Well, we'll put both of those uh, in the show notes. Graham Wood does really terrific work. Um, what are the next steps? What do you see coming, um, going back to, to Iran and the broader Middle East? Everything feels very jumbled to me right now in the Middle East. And I suppose it's not the first time that it's felt that way in the region. What's, what's next? I mean, you know, Iran was, was reasonably well isolated. Our, our European friends were upset that, that Donald Trump had, um, exerted maximum pressure on the Iranians, uh, but they weren't looking to cuddle up to the Iranians while Trump was in office. Do you have a sense of where the Europeans are now as they look at the Biden administration in office and how they think about Iran and opportunities or challenges there? So I've actually seen a bunch of European ambassadors in the cup in the last uh, in the last week or so, and so I, I got to hear it from the horse's mouth. Um, you know, they're super happy Trump is gone for you know obvious reasons, and um, and and they're pretty eager to get back to the table with the Iranians. They, you know, they didn't think the the Obama deal was great. Uh, but they thought it was better than no deal at all. And that's the position they've held to. So what do they want? They want to get back to the deal, but they also want Iran to, uh, to return to compliance. You know? And that is, that's a lot to do for, for Iran because they are very far out of compliance. They've st- started enriching again. They've, uh, they've fired up one of their reactors that they had to close down. And that's just what we know. Then there's all that stuff we don't know. They were denying access to the International Atomic Energy Agency, which was part of the pledge to the, to the, um, uh, in the JCPOA. Um, and so the Europeans want the Iranians to come back into compliance, and they, um, and they want them to do it fast because Iran has elections in June. So they've got elections. So the beloved Rouhani, the wonderful, wonderful president of Iran that we've all learned to love, uh, is uh, is going to be out, and God knows who's going to be in. So they 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 feel that pressure. 
But I think they're also worried about the Biden administration. I think they're worried about the people who we talked about that were in that article, not just Wendy Sherman, who was one of the negotiators of the deal, or Colin Call, who is, uh, you know, a pretty far left anti-Israel lover of the deal, but also Rob Malley, who's the new um, who's the new special envoy for Iran. They're nervous about those guys, not because they think that they'll do the wrong thing, but because they think they'll be too eager to get back in the deal and that they'll cut a bad deal, that they will release money to Iran, that Iran will use to do bad things. And so, you know, it's sort of a you know, it, it's the usual trepidation the Europeans have. They prefer to have the Democrats, but they're worried the Democrats are too squishy. How do you do you have a good sense of um, what kind of visibility we have into what the Iranians are up to? I mean, we don't have there are no inspectors on the ground. As you say, they've they've been they've been deceiving the IAEA for years. They were deceiving the IAEA long before the Iran deal, but they continued to deceive the IAEA. The IAEA has busted them on a number of occasions. Not much has happened as a result of, of that. Um, we obviously during the Trump administration, we had very good relations with, with Israel. Um, Israel was a pipeline for very good intelligence on what the Iranians were up to. Uh, Joe Biden, when he came into office, took his sweet time calling Benjamin Netanyahu, um, reaching out to the Israelis. Is there, is there any concern that we won't have the kind of window on the activities of the regime, not just in the nuclear, uh, sphere, but, but beyond that, because the relationship between Biden and Netanyahu is not strong. I don't know if we'd say it's strained, probably could say it's strained. Or doesn't that matter? The the interests of the states are so, so far bigger than these little personal um, tensions. We'll be, we'll be getting good intelligence, sharing good intelligence and, and understanding at least what the Israelis understand. Right. Um, So even during the Obama years, our intel relationship with Israel was really good. Um, and he, he, I think he hated Benjamin Netanyahu with a sort of a personal animus. Um, you know, I don't think Joe Biden has personal animus towards towards Bibi Netanyahu, who may not be the prime minister because we are having the 98th election in Israel of the last, you know, three months uh, next Tuesday. So um, it probably will still be Bibi, but maybe not. But I really, I don't worry about the intel cooperation with Israel. I think that is entrenched. I think it is professionalized. I think it is good. What I worry about is what we do with the intel. So we've gotten in the habit of having these super political people at the head of the agency, at the head of the CIA. And the CIA has basically since the end of the Iraq war, or since the beginning of the Iraq war, um, become a highly political agency. So I'm less worried about what we know and more worried about what we do with that information and how widely we allow that information to be disseminated, whether it's to the IAEA or the UN Security Council or to Congress. The problem for us is not knowing what the Iranians are doing, although we don't have perfect visibility into what they do, for sure. We've never, ever not been surprised by the advances of their nuclear program. But my bigger concern is that we just... um, fail to share that information with people who might suggest that we need to be more aggressive, more activist, more uh, vigilant. Can I sneak in one quick follow-up, Sarah? Sorry. Of course. On on the CIA, uh, Bill Burns, longtime diplomat, was just uh, confirmed by voice vote uh, yesterday, I believe, and um, is now running the CIA. 
what what are your thoughts uh, on him? And is there any chance that he will depoliticize the agency? Nah, I like Bill a lot. Um, I've known him for you know God thirty years, and and he's a good guy. He's a serious guy. He's not you know he's 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 no he's not a hack. Um, uh, you know, and and in so far as in so far as his politics, I tend to think of him as kind of an old school Democrat. You know, internationalist and and someone who believes in American America's role in the world, which I really like and appreciate. Um, but he's also a foreign service officer. And um, and I think it's really important for people to understand who don't think about this all the time, how subordinated our intelligence is to our politics and to our policy world. Um, you know, again, it's not something that the average Joe sees on a daily basis, but even the National Security Agency is um, is subordinate to to the State Department in terms of policy, in terms of what it reveals. And I don't think Bill is going to make that better, not because he's dishonest, but because he thinks that, um, let me not put words in his mouth, I can't say he thinks, but because the the point of view that I think is represented by a lot of people who head up the agency is that intelligence should be subordinate to policy. And that means that when you get inconvenient information, you uh, suppress it or you go and look for mitigating information before you're willing to share it. Hello, it is Ryan and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I want to move on to Israel. Uh, the Times of Israel is reporting on a memo that shows that the Biden administration wants to pursue a two-state st- solution. And in doing so, and in incentivizing that, wants to roll back certain Trump administration changes, for instance, the recognition, legitimization of the settlements. Uh, But the Trump administration also moved the embassy to Jerusalem. What changes will the Biden administration bring to their policy toward Israel? And what if those are good? What of them are bad? Is there actually hope for a two-state solution in a Biden administration? Or are they just going to hope to kick the can down the road as many others have? Yeah, that can has been kicked so many times. I hate to think what it looks like. So uh, we've got a bunch of stuff going on between the Israelis and the Palestinians, not between them uh, exactly, but it, uh, in their in their uh, story. So we've got the Israeli elections that we talked about. Um, and polls right now show uh, Netanyahu's party pretty substantially ahead, but maybe not with enough seats to forge a, a majority. Then we've got, for the first time since 2005, We've got uh, elections in the Palestinian Authority. Um, the uh, the Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas, has been in office despite his term expiring more than a decade ago. And that pretty much tells you everything you need to know about Palestinian politics, right? You've got this really old guy who is hanging on to power and who has um, tried to either suppress, keep out, exclude any competitors 
for the position, including among younger Palestinians. Then, of course, you've got Hamas in the in Gaza, right? And they are uh, they're also up for election. They are trying to run together with Fatah, the uh, P, what 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 is the PLO basically, um, because they recognize that both of them are now so unpopular that their fortunes may be better together. So nobody's house is in order politically, not the Palestinian house and not the Israeli house, and. I think that the Biden administration is, you know, is is probably game to change Trump's policy, which was nakedly pro-Israel, um, but not really game to put this at the, you know, I'm going to win a Nobel Peace Prize, John Kerry in charge kind of school of foreign policy. And so they might change some things. They're probably going to restart aid to the Palestinians. But that's problematic because there's a lot of law that they have to comply with, like the Palestinians can't give can't give money to martyr families under the terms of the Taylor Force Act. Um, I don't think they're going to move the the embassy from Jerusalem because they've said they're not going to move the embassy from Jerusalem. They're going to be tougher on settlements because all democratic administrations are tougher on settlements. But my bet is unless something dramatically changes among the Palestinians, they're not going to put a ton of eggs in the whole peace process basket. You know, uh, it, it it has been the bane of pretty much every administration that has, you know, decided that the path forward on peace is, is going to be at the centerpiece of their accomplishments in the Middle East. And of course, they get screwed by the Israelis, they get screwed by the Palestinians, and it doesn't, it doesn't work. So yeah, some change, but uh, I wouldn't, uh, you know, I wouldn't keep my eyes glued to that particular file in any way looking for dramatic stuff. Is the Israeli election affected at all by the change in administration of the U.S.? So often uh, is, Israeli prime ministers are tied pretty closely to a U.S. president. But as you said, this is, what, the fourth election in two years that they've had? Uh, so if you keep having elections that quickly, eventually you're going to end up with what's happening now, which is a Israeli election during a transition of American politics where the prime minister can't really tout a specific relationship with the new American president. Right. So, I mean, that kind of got upended by uh, Donald Trump and Bibi's really gross and obvious love affair that just was inappropriate and (laughs) you just don't want to even picture it in your mind because you. But, I mean, seriously, in one of the previous elections, they put out pictures of Trump and and Bibi together. It's like an election ploy. so everybody was outraged by that. But, you know, as you feel grossed out and outraged, remember that Barack Obama sent his own campaign guys over, right, during his administration in order to defeat Bibi. So the U.S. Interfer- the US has, has a history of interfering in Israeli elections. And, yeah, of course, the Dems prefer the, the, the leftist parties and the Republicans don't actually prefer the rightist parties because, you know, until Trump, they didn't take a strong opposition uh, on Israeli politics. But we've always stuck our, our, our nose in it. And yeah, Biden, as Steve said, Biden took forever to call Bibi and, you know, called, you know, I think the, the, the prime minister of Sweden before he called the prime minister of Israel. So you know, yeah, there, are, there, there'll be, there will be, there will be a more pronounced coolness. But the bottom line is, 
this is a really different Middle East than even when Biden was vice president. And the Israelis don't rely as much on the love and goodwill of Washington as they did. They've got new great relationships with the United Arab Emirates, with Bahrain. And um, and I think uh, Israel is in some ways thinking of its future in the Middle Eastern context more than in the 51st state context. You, you have uh, spent a long time watching Republican politics and Republican approaches to foreign policy. Where is the Republican Party on foreign policy right now? I, I look across at, at that landscape and it's a mess. Um, you know, you you have sort of a hangover from the, the Bush administration, from the, the Bush presidency. You have a, a Trump presidency that felt very much like sort of ad hoc foreign policy, whatever was, whatever he felt like doing on any given day was what he did or what he said, uh, without a lot of planning and, and a lot of strategy, but made, you know, made progress in, in some important ways. I would point to, to Israel and the Middle East as, as one of those. There was, there was thought to be a, a coming libertarian moment, uh, sort of neo-isolationism or non-interventionism, on the rise. It feels like the coming libertarian moment in foreign policy is always coming and never quite arrives. It, it, where are, where are we? Take, take any of that rambling mess uh, of a question and, and answer it however you like. No, it wasn't a rambling mess. It, it reflected pretty well what the, what the problem is. But I mean, you guys know this you know, better than I do. The problem in American politics is that Foreign policy only matters when foreign policy matters, right? So, I mean, it matters to me. It matters 9-11. It matters when it becomes an election tactic like the Iraq war. Um, you know, it matters if you're in the middle of Vietnam or, you know, it's Pearl Harbor. But otherwise, Americans are pretty consistent. Um, they don't, you know, they don't, they don't really, they don't, they like being all powerful. They like being big man on campus. But they don't actually want to do what it takes to remain big mountain on campus. And the general instinct of, I think, most Americans is sort of, you know, reserved, right? Um, you know, I don't, I, I hate the overuse of this expression about going abroad in search of monsters because I, people who understand American history tell me it doesn't mean what people say it means. But, you know, I think that is actually the general mindset. And I think the Republican Party is reflective of that. You know, we we sort of super fondly remember Ronald Reagan, but of course Ronald Reagan was the one who skedaddled like a, you know, chicken with its head cut off after the Beirut embassy bombings and about the Marine barracks attack in 1983. So, you know, even his record was sort of like, you know, I don't want to get entangled in this crap. Um, I think the Republican Party reflects reflects the, the body politic in a lot of ways. You've got, you know, Rand Paul and Mike Lee, who are, you know, libertarian isolationist tending. And you've got, you know, Lindsey Graham and the John McCain School of, you know, good neocon leadership in the world, you know, pro-NATO, pro-Iraq war, stay in Afghanistan, stay in Syria. And I think the Republican Party kind of feels like it doesn't have to decide um, which is one of the luxuries of being out of power. I don't know. Um, you know, 
it was really interesting that uh, that Donald Trump, for I suspect completely insane personal reasons, didn't ha- didn't want a platform for the party uh, last year. But one of the things that meant was that you know the platforms, you know, they 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 have nothing to do with how someone governs, right? <laughs> they have nothing to do with any reality. But they are sort of a signal of what the lowest common denominator policy is. So like people on the Democratic side fought to take Jerusalem as the capital of Israel out of the Democratic Party platform. Okay. And Republicans like to keep it in there. It, it's just a, it, all it is is like a, a bellwether. Um, and there wasn't one. So it was really hard for us to know. Uh, the, the, I, I think sort of bottom, so I'm giving you as rambling an answer as you gave me a question. But I do think the bottom line is if you look at the Trump administration, um, you know, for all of its unbelievably screwed up awfulness, on national security, they often ended up tumbling into doing the right thing. And when they did the right thing, they actually didn't get in a lot of trouble for it. Right. So they ended up keeping more troops in Afghanistan, keeping more troops in Syria, having a tough on Putin policy, really going after the Iranians, doing pretty revolutionary stuff in the Middle East. And you didn't really see any voters come out and say, I'm not voting for Donald Trump because of that. Well, you know, I think that the, I, I feel pretty optimistic about where the center of gravity is on national security and the Republican Party, Rand Paul notwithstanding. Who are who are the Republican elected officials who people should listen to or take seriously when they speak? Who, who, if if we're going to sit up and and pay attention when certain Republicans in Congress talk about these issues, who should we pay more careful attention to? I, I suspect we'd probably come up with the same list. I'm a huge fan of of Mike Gallagher's. Um, I'm a huge fan. Uh, it's a representative from Wisconsin. I'm a huge fan of Adam Kinzinger, um, Representative Mike Waltz, another one. A lot of these guys, in fact, every single one of these guys <laughs> that I just mentioned, served uh, in in the military. Um, not all veterans are 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 supportive of um, U.S. leadership on the global stage, but I think these guys are great. And what I really like about them is um, they're smart. Elise Stefanik from New York, um, also terrific. You know, Lindsey Graham, nobody can quite figure out what Lindsey's all about. But on foreign policy, he's somebody who I trust. I like his instincts. Ironically, um, you know, Mitch McConnell, the man everybody loves to hate um, and who doesn't do a ton on national security, um, is really you know, is really solid on U.S. international engagement. And he has his pet issues. So he's really, really up in arms about Burma, for example. But, um, you know, I think these guys are good. Marco Rubio has continued to be really engaged uh, on, on national security issues, which I'm super happy about because there really is a shrinking number of people who are interested in these issues. Even on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, you can just count on one hand the number of members that actually care about this stuff. But those are all people, and there are, there are a ton more. That's not, that's not an exclusive list, but those are people who I really like and I, I respect, not always on everything, but on foreign policy for sure. So on September 14th, 2020, you wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post. Uh, the headline was, <laughs> I never considered voting for Trump in 2016. I may be forced to vote for him this year. Uh, 
in that you said you weren't particularly concerned about his uh, more dictatorial tendencies, but you were deeply concerned about some foreign policy issues on the left and some domestic policy issues on the left. I'm wondering whether you'll tell us who you voted for and whether the events of January 6th change your opinion on what you wrote in the op-ed. Yes. That op-ed good question. Is a gift, it's a gift good question. that keeps on giving. And it is a good question. Um, so here was the thing. Uh, why did I, why, why would I write an op-ed like that? Why would I feel the need to, you know, stick my neck out and believe me, <laughs> I did. You didn't and, feel like uh, you were getting enough hate tweets on Twitter. You just wanted to churn that pot a little and you thought, how can I do it best? And this was a really good way to do it. It, it, well, yes, if, if, if you know, I, I often said about Donald Trump that he's a man who loves attention so much he would light his hair on fire uh, if it just meant that more eyeballs were on him. And apparently I also attended that school of, uh, <laughs> of, of personal attention. So, yeah, uh, 23,000 comments later uh, in The Washington Post, six, fully six op-eds in the pages of the Washington Post written against me because, you know, I'm so all powerful. <laughs> um, look, here's, here's, here's what, here's what the thinking was that went into it. Um, Donald Trump sucks. Um, and I, I'll talk about January 6th in a second, but Donald Trump sucks. You know, he's not, a, he's not, he's neither a good person nor was he a good leader. Um, but I, uh, I really believe in our guardrails. I really believe in our institutions. I really believe in our systems. I think they work. And everybody who said that Donald Trump was a threat to democracy, I really thought that there was ample proof in the fact that he lost every court case, that he's not still sitting in the White House, that he was pushed aside when he asked to set aside our our checks and balances, not just by the courts, but by his own vice president, who was unusually subservient to the president's sort of bad behavior and unusually silent on that question. But you know what? When push came to shove, Mike Pence said, I ain't going to do it. Right. So all of those things gave me a lot of reassurance that our systems really do protect us. And on the other side, what the Democrats were proposing to do and are now still proposing to do is is abolish some of those guardrails. Right. So the filibuster and we can argue about the filibuster if you want, but the filibuster uh, expand the size of the Supreme Court expand the size of the House of Representatives in order to um, expand the size of the Electoral College, uh, bring in the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico into the Senate. Now, why do they want to do those things? Okay. In, except in the case of the District of Columbia, where I actually think there is an ideological commitment to make D.C. a state, in all of those cases, they're not about the size of the Supreme Court. They're not about the size of the Electoral College. They're about outcomes. In other words, we need to have a bigger Supreme Court so we can have a permanent liberal majority. We need to bring D.C. and Puerto Rico into the Senate because then we will have four guaranteed Democratic seats. We need to increase the size of the House of Representatives so we can change the mix in the Electoral College so that we can ensure that we have a permanent majority, even when people move around inside the United States. Those things are a direct outcome-oriented, unprincipled assault on the very things that I think give us protections, protect us against people like Donald Trump, protect us against people like AOC, you know, 
And that was the argument that I made, um, that I think those changes are so dangerous. And once you open that Pandora's box, it doesn't stop, right? Because then we're going to have a bigger, we're going to, you know, we're going to have a bigger uh, um, Senate. And then all of a sudden the Republicans next time they're in charge, if they were ever going to get it, would say we need to break up California. Okay. Because in fact, all of California doesn't represent Californians. It only represents leftist Californians. What about Northern California? They're conservative. They should be allowed to have, you know, they should be allowed to have an electoral college number that represents them too, because that's undemocratic. Illinois, also very unrepresentative. So you can see where this crap goes and you can actually see the unraveling of our system. So that was the argument that I made at the time. On January 6th, I was embarrassed because, um, because I felt ashamed of what Donald Trump did and because I thought that there was, um, I, I never believed he would do such a thing. I never believed that he would assault our, um, our country and our systems and our people and our Congress physically in the way that he did. And um, I'm glad he lost. Sorry, that was a really long answer, but you asked me a really great answer. question. No, I think that's a good answer. Okay, last question. In high school, what group did you run with? <laughs> in, the, in the breakfast club style, you know, back in the day where people belong to, you know, little cliques, what, what was your clique? Oh, my God. I'm so glad high school's over. Um, I'm assuming Steve was a jock, but we'll find out here in a he sec. He looks like one. I know. I wanna, and I want to know, I want to know about you too, Sarah. Um, I finished high school when I was 16 uh, because I started school in England. So I was super young. And so I was sort of super young and no, I wasn't cool. Uh, I wasn't part of the breakfast club. Um, I, I don't think I had a, I don't think I had a clique. I had a group of friends who I, um, who I, I was super lucky to have, you know, I went to Brookline high school, um, same place as Mike Dukakis and, uh, in the people's Republic of Brookline, Massachusetts. And so, <laughs> um, yeah, I had a, I had a nerdy, smart, but really fun, uh, group, but they, I wouldn't say we were sporty. I wouldn't say we were cool. <laughs> we were not cool. Steve, I think you were cool. I, I was I ran with the the jocks um, to be sure. We were I was a, I played soccer in high school, um, and we had a really great group of friends. Um, we were you know we played soccer. We had a really good time in high school. Um, we were very interested in girls. Um, what I you know my my <laughs> my, my grades my grades were were decent. You know they were good enough to to get me into some, some good schools, but I probably could have studied harder. I was more interested in oh, you were studying just late nights not the books. talking on the phone and, <laughs> um, yeah. And playing, we played a ton of volleyball, a ton of beach volleyball, which was great. Okay. Sarah. Sort of a jock. I think this will come as a shock to everyone and every listener who is tuned in, especially to advisory opinions. My other podcast on uh, legal nerdery with David French, um, I was the president of the orchestra <laughs> and uh, was very into musical theater, which uh, is cool at some people's high schools, I suppose, but it was not cool at mine. 
Um, so we had, there were, there were two main areas to sit at lunch inside, which uh, was awesome because you got a table and a chair and stuff like that. And then there was outside where there was a deck. So that was cool for like the like sort of stoner kids, you know, like hip hipster, hippie, pre-hipster. We didn't have hipsters. Um, and then there was the hallway outside the band room. <laughs> I mostly ate lunch in the hallway outside the band room. Sometimes we sat on the deck. We did. Um, so yeah, high school was you know, everyone finds their, their friends. My, my very, uh, I had two wonderful best friends, both of whom I stay in touch with. And, um, they are the coolest, nerdiest chicks I know. So, you know, all's well that ends well. Well, let me, let me, let me get your back a little bit, Sarah, because I too was in the orchestra. I was, uh, I played violin all the way through my senior year But see, like, this is the epitome of the difference between us. You played violin, which was the cool like lead jock what? instrument to play. Really? I played viola, which was the joke. <laughs> I played the flute. So I was in the band too. Uh, I'm not sure that violin was as cool as you you perceived it. Maybe in Who do you the think world is the coolest, of yeah, orchestra yeah. Who's geeks? the coolest string instrument? I mean, maybe the bass guys. Cello, bass, yeah, bass, bass guys, because they could translate that to, you know, being in a band and right. playing electric bass. And drums, there was, there drums was some don't of that. forget drums. Yeah, percussion. Yeah. Was, Our bass was players were mostly cool. stoned, so yeah. That- my, my, uh, we, had a, we had a really terrific orchestra. We, we played, I mean, it was crazy advanced. Um, it was like a hundred pieces. We took trips around the Midwest. Uh, we actually came out to Washington DC for an orchestra trip. The, my, the, um, distinction was that my orchestra teacher told my parents that I was the only violinist he's ever seen who could really play laying down. So I, I would just lie back in, you know, like cool kids tried to do in high school on a chair, you know, basically horizontal and play the violin that way. I didn't take it quite as seriously as, as other people <laughs> did, but I was also on the forensics team too. So I had, I did have a, a, a bit of, you know, nerd in me too. I love the forensics team. That was a blast. I think, I think your inner nerd is really showing here, Steve. Thank you. I was just trying to, just trying to, to get you there. I was just trying to get I you I still back. think Danielle and I have you beat though. I can just, I can feel her nerd spirit with me. Yeah, I'm afraid. Uh, I'm afraid that there was no, there was, there was just, just no cool. Looking back at my pictures, just a little <laughs> cringy. So, but I don't know. Do you guys remember Dave Barry had possibly one of the funniest pieces he ever wrote about what happens to the cool kids from high school? No. It just never ends well. Basically, there's an inverse relationship between coolness in high school and your success in life. I'm happy to report. <laughs> I have this theory that um, women in particular who were not attractive to boys in junior high uh, had to develop better personalities in order to attract male attention. They had to be funnier. They had to be something, right? Wittier. You had to have something else going for you. And so all of the cool chicks now, you can bet, were relatively unattractive in sixth and seventh grade. There you go. These are good theories of high school. This is why people listen to the podcast. That's this right. Is, <laughs> That's right. This is what gets people coming back. <laughs> Everyone went to high school. Everyone right. remembers high school. Fair. That's true. Danielle, it's a great unifier. Thank you so much for joining us, for, for helping 
put foreign policy in high school terms for someone like me. I appreciate it. And uh, we hope to continue seeing you in the pages of The Dispatch. Thanks for having me, guys. I love being on the pages of The Dispatch. So anytime. Take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child, and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms, and it turned into a passive-aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply.